morning again. We're in Matthew chapter 18. And um, we're reading from verses 15 through verse 20. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of God says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For there, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this passage. Even though it's a hard passage, it's a hard passage to practice. I pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds so that we can be doers of this passage, not just hearers. Father, we know that uh, uh, Christ is working in the church to uh, make her spotless, without wrinkle. And uh, we know that it is your will that we become formed to the image of your Son. So, Father, I pray that we can pay close attention to this and apply it. In Jesus' name I pray. May be seated. Uh, living in community is hard. It's hard to live in, in community. Uh, being involved with one another, it, it's kind of a, a hard thing to, to do. Uh, and what we're doing is we're looking at this passage, and this passage is having to deal specifically with how does one live in community? How does the group of saved People live together, minister together. How does that happen? Uh, anyone who uh, has been married can attest to the fact that uh, living in community can be hard at times. You have two sinners that are living together under one household, and, and it can be difficult at times. I have a, uh, a gifting from the Lord. Uh, I can stand at a certain place in the kitchen, and I can look as my wife is cooking, and I'm I offer her these pearls of wisdom. Turn the heat down a little bit. Turn it up. You're cutting that at a wrong angle. And for some reason or another, she doesn't seem to always appreciate those, those tidbits of knowledge, that, that, that wisdom that just flows out of my mouth. For some reason, at times, she just finally turns to me and says, do you want to cook? You know, uh, Living in community can be hard at times. Uh, even when you have two saved people who are trying to glorify God, uh, one sometimes gets caught up in their own knowledge. And it, and it happens. But how, does that, how do you live in community when you have a lot of people uh, from diverse backgrounds? How, how does that happen? And this text kind of focuses in on community guidelines of what is supposed to happen. Now, last week, 
we were looking at the fact that we needed to remove some obstacles. And there was three obstacles. The first is the obstacle of pride. If we're going to come, we need to come as a child. We can't come with any type of arrogance, any type of pridefulness. We have to come humbly. We have to get rid of this pride. The second obstacle is uh, sin, sin in our own life. And this is uh, twofold. One sin of, um, of actively encouraging others to, to go away from God. And, and the other one is to modeling a behavior. So maybe I'm saying that a relationship with God is very important, but my actions show that really there's a lot of other stuff that's more important than God. And then a, a wondering heart, a heart that's just constantly wondering. And we saw this, this aspect of the sheep where there's a shepherd and he has a hundred sheep and uh, one goes missing. And usually we think about that, that small little lamb, so precious and everything. We don't usually picture that big old, uh, have you guys gone to the Houston rodeo and seen the, the mutton bus? You know, where the kids can ride on top. I'm talking about one of those sheep, you know. We, we usually don't picture one of those, you know, headbutting people that the shepherd is trying to drag back to the, to the hundred. But there's an aspect there in the, in the wondering hearts of people that sometimes uh, they harden their hearts. So I'm not talking about people that lose their salvation. Jesus says that uh, his sheep, uh, his sheep hear his voice. So there's sheep that are out there, but then there are his sheep that hear his voice and follow him. So there's some people that have maybe a knowledge, they have a vocabulary, they, have, they know when to stand, they know when to sit, but they don't have a relationship with God. Christ is not their shepherd. They have no relationship with God. And uh, oh, these individuals, even though it says in verse 14 that it's the will of the Father who is in heaven that no one, uh, not one of these little ones perish, yet we know from Revelation chapter 20 that there are some who are cast into the lake of fire because they'll never trust Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. They'll have a hardened heart They'll think that by their merits, by something that they're doing, the way they sing, the way they recite verses, the way they do community service, that somehow that's going to get them into heaven. Now, as we're looking at this, we see that the Christian must confront each other's sins to, be, uh, to have a holy community in Christ that uh, God will work through. That, that's what we're looking at today. Uh, how do Christians, how Christians must confront each other's sins? Uh, now, I'm, I don't know what you think when I say confront each other's sin, uh, maybe uh, horror stories about stuff. Uh, let's look at this text and see what it does and how we work through it, and then we can apply it to our own lives, okay? So the first thing we're going to see is this holy community, you know, which is the church, and that we see in verses 15 through 17, a holy community, uh, the church. In verse 15 it says, if your brother sins. Now it mentions the word brother here, and usually brother has some type of family relationship. It's used in a family relationship. Once we get into the epistles, we start to see that uh, through Christ, uh, we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit uh, puts us into the family of God, and so we have, uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this hasn't been really developed yet in the Gospel of Matthew, it's been hinted at a little bit. We've seen it in Matthew 6, verse 9, where it says, uh, Our Father, which is in heaven, having the same Father implies that we have a familiar relationship one with another. So we're talking about those who are in the community of faith. We're not talking about people outside. Obviously, sinners are going to sin. But it says, If your brother sins, 
Now, this is a different word that we've been seeing. We've been seeing stumbling blocks. We've been looking at this. This is not a stumbling block. This is a sin. This is a transgression, uh, something that a person committed that was wrong against the law or character of God. So this is not an opinion. Uh, This is not a preference. It's not like if your brother has this certain preference, this is what you're going to do. If he has uh, this thought process. No, this is specifically mentioning sin. Uh, Believe it or not, believe it or not, some people uh, like to have cats in their home. Ah, right? Why would they do that? I don't know why they would do that. But they have these things in there, and then they pick them up, and they, they pet on them. Why? Why? I don't know. But they do. And, and, but that's a preference of mine. See, you might have another preference. You might like the cat. Why? I don't know. But you might be one of those that likes them. This is not talking about preference. For you to get from that preference to that being an actual sin, you have to do a lot of uh, exegetical acrobats. I mean, you have to really try to interpret that, the Bible, and move it around. We're not talking about preferences. People have preferences of, of wearing certain types of clothing, of doing certain activities. We're not talking about preferences here. We're talking about sin, something that the person does that violates the law or character of God. I'm not saying, well, I just don't like how that person seems. That's, that's your preference. That's not. This is actual law of God. They violate it. So if your brother sins, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Well, I mean, the thing that we'd like to do is act like we didn't see it, right? You're sending over here, and we're like, huh, I didn't see anything. I'm void of responsibility. That's not what Jesus says. He says, go and show him his fault. You have to go and show. Uh, this idea of showing him his fault has this idea of uh, to expose something uh, to be scrutinized. It, it kind of carries this idea. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, a, a flea market or something where they kind of put everything out on the table that they're selling so that you can come by and scrutinize and see what you want to, what you like to buy. It says you go to them and you lay it out before them how they have sinned. This has nothing to do with one's preference, one's, what one likes or one dislikes. You present them how they have violated God's law, God's character. And you do it in private. So you don't put a Facebook message and you tag this person and you say, this is what you've done, right? You, you don't do that. You don't bring it up as a prayer request on Wednesday night and say, let's pray for brother so-and-so because he's been doing this, right? You go to the person privately. And it says, if he listens, that, that's the word listening in this idea is more than just that their, their ears are, are receiving the sound. This is that they're going to put it into practice, that they acknowledge the fact that they have sinned, that they have done what's wrong. He says, you have won your brother. Now, winning carries two different ideas in, in, in this, uh, this word carries kind of two different ideas. Uh, winning or gaining is, is one of them. So say you have uh, $100 and you invest it and you get another $100. You've gained, you've won $100. And, and this word could be used in that sense. Another sense that this word has is that um, if you've managed to secure 
not to lose anything. So you've managed to secure it so that you have no loss. That is a gain. That's also a gain. It's very hard to not have a loss at all. But if you somehow manage to secure something so that uh, you, you don't have any less of it, that is also considered a gain. And in this word, in this verse, both aspects are applicable. You've gained the person because now they've been exposed to this sin and they know, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. But another aspect is that in telling the person their sin, uh, not allowing them to continue in this sin, whatever sin it might be, the, the person doesn't harden and callous themselves towards God. In, in fact, it gives them an opportunity to, to return to God. Oh, so many times you see individuals who they start with this sin and they keep on doing it and there's a hardness that starts to happen in their heart. And little by little you see them going away, not to another church, not to be involved in a ministry, not to be sent as a missionary, not to go start a church, but they just slowly just kind of disappear into a crowd of people who don't seek after God, who have no care about God, and in this aspect, in exposing the person's sin, you are securing them from not taking off. That they continue being part of the, the, the community of faith. Uh, if he listens to you, that's, that's great. And I would say, I've never done a study about this. I've never read a study done. Again, I, I bet it would be impossible to try to get a percentage of this. But if I would have to say 95% of the situations where you expose someone's sin, I'm not talking about your preference, I'm talking about a sin that they're doing, you expose it to them, majority of the people say, oh, you're right. I have done wrong. And it doesn't go any further than that. But what happens in those rare situations where the person says, I don't care what that verse says. I'm going to keep on doing what I want to do. I'm just going to keep on doing what do you do in that situation? Well, Jesus says in verse 16, but if he does uh, not listen to you, so he doesn't pay attention, he, he doesn't want to say, oh, yes, you're right, and, and seek for forgiveness, but uh, it tells us to take one or two more with you so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So now you've got to take it and escalate it to bring some people along with you. The witnesses serve not only uh, to hear what's going on, but they also keep you in check. As you start exposing the person's sin and you start telling them, hey, you did this and this and this, the witness might say, um, I think you're just dealing with your preference. That, that's not really a, a violating God's law. That's not really violating God's character. And then you say, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing all this. Please forgive me. So it keeps the person in check, but it also examines the other person to see how their heart is. If their heart is willing to acknowledge what God's Word says and repent and turn away from it, or if they're going to continue in their sin or not. And it's by these witnesses that you do this. Now, what happens in the case that, which is, which is very rare, uh, very rare does it get past this point. But let's say it gets past this point. You've taken your witnesses. They do not, uh, the person still doesn't want to know. Then what do you do? Well, it says there in, in uh, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be uh, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So now it escalates even more. It gets presented before the church. Now it doesn't get presented to the, to the deacon. Uh, it doesn't get presented to the pastor. It then gets brought before the church. And we're going to look at a reason why it gets brought to, before the church. Um, but here it's the authority of the church that looks at this and examines this issue. And if in the case that the person does not want to repent, then the person gets considered as a Gentile. Now, is this a kind of a racial slur that Jesus is doing here, uh, kind of insulting them, like saying, hey, you're a tax collector? Uh, I don't know if that's an insult. It really indicates the aspect of being outside of the community. So they, he's talking to his disciples, and Gentiles and tax collectors were traitors and people outside the community of faith. And this is how they were supposed to acknowledge a person who did not want to repent. Not because of a preference of a person, but they've been exposed to God's law, God's character. They want to continue doing their sin. They want to continue being involved. And they do not want to repent. You have to then consider that person as they are not a believer. They are not part of the family of God. They're outside of that. Now, as we look at this, uh, it brings some questions to mind. Some questions that we need to kind of answer uh, before we can really dive into doing this type of thing. The first question is, uh, what is the church? What, what is the church? Because we're dealing with the church. If we're going to bring somebody before the church, who in the world is the church? Uh, to do this, uh, we've got to kind of answer what is the church. And there's two aspects of the church. And we kind of looked at this last time in chapter 16 when it started mentioning the church. There's a universal church, or you could call it the body of Christ. Some people feel more comfortable with the body of Christ. And that is, it has some characteristics to it. The first characteristic is that it includes everyone saved from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. Anybody saved from Pentecost all the way to the rapture of the church, this is part of this universal or body of Christ. It also has where Christ is the head of the church, and the church obviously is the body. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. Uh, this is really important because it gives a sequence in Ephesians. It says that Christ came, he died, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and then the Father makes the church uh, his body. So it's not until after the ascension that we have the church. And there's another aspect here about the, uh, the church, the universal church, the body of Christ, and that it's saved individuals who are put into the body by the Spirit. The Spirit places that individual into the body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and verse 27. And we also see it through uh, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 6, through 7. This aspect that the Spirit puts that person, identifies that person with the body of Christ. Now that's the universal. Uh, when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, none of us determine who's going to be in the body of Christ. When none of us make that decision. When I say you, yes, you, no, no. Uh, the Holy Spirit puts that, places that person in the, the, the body of Christ. Now we have the local church. Uh, and in this aspect, we're dealing with the local church. What in the world is a local church? Well, there's some characteristics of it. It's an organized group of saved, baptized individuals. And the key word there, uh, there's three. One is that it's organized. Uh, so it's not just a, a bunch of saved people getting together. 
Uh, there's all types of places where saved people get together. They have conferences, retreats, uh, but this is an organized group of saved, baptized individuals, and they practice two ordinances. What are the two ordinances? Baptism and Lord's Supper. So they practice two ordinances, and it has two offices, uh, which is elder and deacon, uh, and they gather together to glorify God, edify one another, and evangelize the lost. That's, that's what they do. That's the purpose of the church. That's what the church comes to do. Uh, glorify God, edify, and reach the lost. Now, as we look at this and we see that there's this definition of the church, uh, we have to now ask, what in the world is the responsibility uh, of, of the church? What is the responsibility of the members? Now, to become a member of a local church, in a certain sense, you have to have a testimony, right? Uh, somebody at some point needs to say, yes, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And based on that testimony, and based on the fact that they get baptized, they then can be able to join the church. But there's a, a testimony. We have to hear a testimony of the person. Now, what's the responsibility of the members? Well, uh, overall, the responsibility is to glorify God. We know that from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Uh, Paul narrows it all the way down to just whatever you eat and whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. So every aspect of the church, of what we're doing, needs to glorify God. Uh, the second thing is that we need to be united with Christ after the lost. We have to evangelize. Uh, in John chapter 20, verse 21, uh, Jesus said, uh, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. You, can't, you, would, you have to do all types of interpretive acrobats to say that that was just to the apostles. No, that's to everyone who is a believer. Christ sends us out for the lost. And, but those two issues aren't necessarily mentioned here in this passage. The next two are, are more focused in our passage. So the, the next one is to grow in their relationship with God. There needs to be a spiritual growth. Uh, spiritual growth, and we see that in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we read this morning from Colossians chapter 3, uh, 12 through 17. But if you look at the whole chapter, it starts with this idea. He's asking, are you risen with Christ? If this is true in your life, then seek the things which are above. Uh, mortify your flesh. And it says, put off the old man, put on the new man. It has this renewing of your mind aspect. And every believer has this purpose. You have to be involved in this, in growing spiritually and becoming more and more like Christ. So that you look at last year and you say, yes, I am more like Christ than I was last year. And if you look back from when I got saved, I've continued to grow a lot more. Sure, there's been dips, but I continue to grow. And that's the responsibility of every believer. But then in the community, the group, there is uh, the responsibility to use our gifts to grow with one another, to edify. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that we have all been given gifts, and these gifts are to be involved with one another for the edification of the church. It's not so that I go home and I say, oh, look how nice, I've got this gift, and, and I'm just going to keep it for myself. Isn't that cute? No, it's used to be involved in the lives of one another to help each other grow. Now, you might say, well, I wasn't given, I wasn't the given the gift of showing my brother's sin. There's some aspects that happen to every believer. For example, evangelism is not just for those who get the gift of evangelism. Everyone has that 
responsibility. Discipling one another is everyone's responsibility. And this aspect here, Jesus doesn't say, if you've got the uh, gift of rebuking your brother, then you have to do this. He opens it up to everyone. So we have this responsibility to help each other grow. That's why we're here, to invest our lives in the lives of other people. Now, there's a lot of people outside of our church uh, that we might have friendships with, but we have a responsibility to those who are in here to help each other grow. We have a very God-given responsibility, a calling to see that each one is growing more and more. So that's the responsibility of the members. Uh, at this point, it's very important to remember uh, the gospel. Because as we're looking at this and we're thinking about helping one another grow, it's important to remember that we are desperately in need. Because we could get very arrogant and go around with a magnifying glass and going, uh-huh, let me see. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. It's not going around like that. And it requires remembering the gospel because it reminds us that the fact that we were desperately needy and Christ saved us. We have not arrived. We put our eyes on Christ and we see him a lot bigger and holier than we are. And it gives us a humility. Now, what is church discipline? What is church discipline? We've looked at the responsibilities uh, of a church. What is church discipline? And church discipline is this process by which God has given to make a church pure. It's the process by which God has given to make the church pure. Uh, So what do I mean by that? We don't, this isn't something that happens on the universal church. This is something that happens in the local church. A person joins the church based on a testimony. We listen to that person. And at at a given time, we listen to their testimony. We all agree and say, yes, this person is saved. And we accept them into our fellowship. But say some years go by, and all of a sudden we start noticing some things in that person's life. Uh, They have a vocabulary that sounds very Christ-like. Maybe they dress like a Christian, whatever that means. But uh, they have some attitudes and they have some things that they're involved in that shows that they are not saved. I mean, at all. They're lost. Uh, we received their testimony at one given time because we, we heard their testimony and we said, yes, he's, he's a Christian. But now there's evidence the fruit that they're producing is not fruit of the Spirit, but it's fruit of the flesh. So what do we do at that time? At that time, the church then has to dismiss that person from its membership. Why? Because it's God's way of keeping a local church pure. See, it's interesting here to note that God cares more about the purity of the church. He does. Uh, You'll see that because later on he'll start talking about where two or three are gathered. He, he, He cares more that there's two or three that are gathered that are pure than a whole crowd of people who are lost. So you see, church discipline acts as a way to purify the church. Now, that happens very rarely. You're thinking, oh my goodness, that that would be so embarrassing. It, It is embarrassing, but it happens very rarely. Usually, if you go and confront the person, you show them from Scripture. Not your preferences. We're not talking about preferences. We're talking about Scripture. You show them from Scripture. This is where you are failing. Most of the time, 95% of the time, the person says, you're right. And it ends right there. 
But there is a mechanism for keeping the church pure because there's an aspect that God cares about a pure and holy church. Now, another thing to notice is that God works through the church. God works through the church. And we see that in verses 18 through 19. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth you shall uh, have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth, about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them uh, by my Father who is in heaven. So there's uh, God works through the church. There's some amazing organizations around the world, fantastic organizations. There, there's these orphanages. There's these groups that do uh, uh, Christian athlete type stuff. Uh, there, there's hospitals. There's all types of stuff that's out there that's being done. But at the end of the day, Christ died for the church. He redeemed the church. He's working through the church. Uh, sometimes people will tell me, um, I feel God has called me to the mission field. I say, fantastic. What's your sending church? Who's sending you out? Oh, I'm not going. I've heard the call from the Lord, and I'm just going to go. I'm like, nah, no. God works through the church. It's through the church that he's working through. It's through being in this church that the Father does the work. There's no lone rangers out there without the authority of the church going and doing ministry. No. Everything is done through the church. And they come together and things are bound or things are loosed. And it's as done as in heaven because the Father is working. Now that doesn't give absolute authority to the church. God always holds absolute authority. The things to notice from this is uh, the power of the church. The power that the church has. It's incredible how the church can be working to be on mission. Now, sometimes we can lose focus of what that mission is. I'm sure you've all heard about uh, uh, the illustration of the, the lighthouse, how there was an old, battered uh, lighthouse. It was a, just a, like a little shack, but it had a light, and it would warn the sailors, warn the boats that uh, there was a rocky shore there to stay away. And uh, it was just uh, four walls, and and a light, and, and um, the, the cracks in the walls were so big that the wind would come in, and, and the men that would go there, they would spend the night, they would make sure that the uh, light was on, and, and they had a purpose, and that purpose was to keep that light going. Little by little, um, uh, it kind of got popular to be one of these guys out there working at the lighthouse. I mean, they were out saving people. Isn't that great? Go save people. And uh, so some people started volunteering. And uh, as the people started volunteering, they noticed that uh, the, the four walls that kind of held the, the light there, were it could use some improvements. So little by little, they started investing time into the lighthouse, not so much in the saving of the people. Oh, they were still saving people. They were still going out. But more funds got put into making it a little bit more comfortable, getting some beds, you know, uh, the cot wasn't, they got some Tempur-Pedic beds, you know, to be able to sleep. If they're going to be able to save people, they got to be nice and rested, right? It got developed to be a little bit of a cultural thing. There was the, the yearly lighthouse festival. People would come and they'd dress up in their lighthouse type clothing and they would have fellowship and they would eat and, and it ended up becoming uh, just something that they were doing culturally. They, they lost their purpose. They lost their mission. 
And what we see in verses 18 and 19 is a tremendous power has been given to the church to fulfill the mission of the church. But sometimes we get lost in what the purpose and the mission of the church is. We, we become very focused on ourselves. Uh, it's amazing to think about all the stuff that needs to get done around the church and how many volunteers we have. I mean, just all types of people are involved on this campus, uh, cutting uh, plants, uh, mowing the grass, painting, fixing things. But the building and the property is not an end to itself. It just serves as a place to where we can minister. And if we're not ministering, if we're not glorifying God, if we're not edifying one another, if we're not reaching the lost, it's all for nothing. Just let the grass grow. Let the building crumble. Our purpose is for that, and we have a tremendous amount of power to be doing the mission of the church. Now, not only do we see a tremendous amount of power, but we see the smallness, the smallness of the church. Again, he keeps on referencing this kind of two, two or three, and then he says in verse 20, he's going to say uh, two uh, or three in my name, but there's this smallness aspect. And, and it kind of points to this aspect that God cares more about the purity of the church than the size. Now, if we had to be real honest, we would probably say between being a pure church and a big church, we would probably say we want to be a big, pure church, right? I mean, if we, were, <laughs> if we had the options, right? But even in that sequence of adjectives, big came before pure, didn't it? Didn't it? And if we were real honest, we would say, well, yes, we want a pure church, but we want it ginormous. The thing is, is that there are few, few that like to be confronted. Most of the times they'll repent. But to find that type of attitude or that type of involvement, it's few. The smallness of the church. Now, the last point is the community in Christ. It says, uh, verse 20, uh, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. To be gathered in Christ's name means to be gathered for his purpose and for his plan, with his authority. Can we really say that we are gathered in his name if we're not growing in grace? Is that, is that an option to say, we're not growing in grace, but we're gathered in his name? Is it possible to say that I, I'm really not going to be obedient to this text, and I'm not going to be really loving to you all, so I'm not going to expose sin, but I'm, I'm gathering in the name of Christ? Is that a possibility? Is it a possibility that say, I, we're not going to confront sin at all. We're just going to hope that it disappears. How? I don't know. It's just somehow going to go away. And can we really say that we're gathering in Christ's name if we're not confronting sin? He says that he's in their midst. He's there. But this is a group that is obeying the confronting of sin in others' life and the purity of the church. Christians must confront each other's sin to have a holy community in Christ that God will work through. He says that God will do anything that's asked. He says, my Father who's in heaven, he will do it. 
but it's a pure community. It's a community that, that obeys God and loves one another. Loves enough to go and tell them their sin. Not preferences, but sin. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, there might be here today some who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. They're not part of that community. Father, they have some stories. They, they, they might have a vocabulary, but they're faking it. Father, I pray your spirit would convict that person of their sin and that they, today there be a day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here that maybe we haven't put an emphasis on a pure church. Maybe our emphasis has been more on, uh, on being comfortable ourselves and we don't want to confront anybody. But Father, as Christ presented here, it's out of obedience to you and love for our brother or sister that we confront. And I pray that we will be obedient to you and loving to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you would please stand with me. We're going to have a song of invitation.